And so I, I do feel like pretty blessed that I'm in this situation because anybody that came out, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, you know, won't, won't be living this situation or people that's still incarcerated. But how New York is handling it, no one's really getting locked up for, for cannabis anymore. You can have up to three ounces of weed on you. People are smoking everywhere. Like all you smell is weed. It's, it's, it's crazy. In my neighborhood alone, there's probably, probably like 50 illicit shops. You know, every block has a smoke shop. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. It's, it's pretty awesome that you can see it getting normalized. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello and a welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And my sincerest apologies, y'all. I feel like things have been a little inconsistent and the theme this year has been full steam ahead, which means that sometimes, unfortunately, podcasting takes a back seat to my primary role, which is CEO of Restart. And we've been super busy, mostly all good things. I'm definitely still navigating some health stuff on a personal level, but overall feeling really positive about where things are going. So the good news is episodes are coming along. I have some great guests lined up. So if you've been itching for new content, here it is. But I hope in the meantime that you've gone back and checked out previous episodes, which I believe are mostly evergreen conversations. And if you're new here, welcome. But if you've listened to every single episode I've produced, then thank you from the bottom of my heart and extra sorry to you who's probably looking forward to new episode drops on Mondays. And again, I'm sorry I've been slacking. But we're back and by we, I mean I, and I have a full agenda to update y'all with. So buckle up, let's tend to some news and updates and then get to today's guest who shares his story about going from a multi-million dollar drug ring to getting incarcerated, to becoming an entrepreneur once he's out, who ultimately ended up impacting his life and turning it around for the better, who is now on the front lines of New York State, receiving a dispensary license to legally open up a marijuana dispensary. Whoa, crazy stuff and a really great story. But okay, to start, drum roll please. I have been nominated and announced as the new president of the Texas Hemp Coalition. This is a huge honor and something I'm super grateful to be able to step into and to continue to represent the coalition on behalf of. For those of you who might not know, the Texas Hemp Coalition is our state's leading hemp and cannabis advocacy nonprofit that represents cultivators, manufacturers, processors, labs, and retailers like myself and has been an amazing organization I've been able to contribute to over the years. And now stepping into a leadership position as a president, I know I'll only be able to amplify more of our work as we continue to advocate for cannabis in the state of Texas. For anyone interested, you don't just have to be from Texas. We love partnering with other state groups, 
organizations or individuals who are interested in what's going on here in Texas and would love to see you a part of our growing organization. You can learn more by going to texashempcoalition.org. Now, in addition to that, the coalition had our first ever hemp lobby day at the Capitol last week because Texas is in its 88th legislative session. And if you haven't lobbied, it is an empowering opportunity because, well, fundamentally, it's your right as a citizen to get in front of these politicians and policymakers and to share your thoughts, opinions and concerns on upcoming legislation. Specifically, there are two bills right now, SB 321, which impacts cultivation, and SB 264, that impacts consumable hemp, that are both reflecting the hemp industry here in Texas. And as an organization, we're pro 321 and against 264 specifically because 264 has a, quote, synthetically derived cannabinoids, end quote, language but the language is general and all-encompassing. And while the author of the bill, I'm guessing, wants to eliminate psychoactive cannabinoids, the language actually impacts other cannabinoids that are non-psychoactive like CBN, which if you tuned into my episode with FloraWorks, you'll understand that CBN is predominantly a chemically derived cannabinoid as in the marketplace right now. So we had a lot of conversations at the Capitol last week. I specifically met with my senator and representative in addition to a few other key individuals whose ears we needed to bend. And this is just one step of many this session in order to see things impacted for the better. So our organization is attempting to help redefine the language in SB 264 to ultimately help defend and protect all cannabinoids. So certainly more to come. And if you want to get involved, please reach out to me or to the Texas Hemp Coalition directly because we would love to have your support. Now on the chemically derived cannabinoids front, as y'all know, one of my favorite topics is that. And we are now just days, mere days away from South by Southwest here in Austin. And my panel, The Future of Chemically Derived Cannabinoids, will be taking place Sunday, March 12th at 1130 a.m. You will need an official South by Southwest badge to attend, but... If you can't make it or you don't have a badge and you'll be in town, I am going to be recording the discussion. So stay tuned as I hope to get that up pretty quickly after we go live. I will be joined by three incredibly smart panelists from Bayou City Hemp Company here in Houston, Texas, also a coalition member, SC Labs, which has labs all over the United States in places like Oregon and Colorado and California, and Pro Verde Labs, which is based in Massachusetts, to dig into this conversation. And for those coming to Austin or still thinking of coming to town for South by Southwest, Cannabis Talks will officially fall between the 10th, 11th, and 12th. And if you'll be in town, please connect as I'd love to meet you, if not at my session, during another time at the event. I think that's mostly the major things to put on your radar. So again, thanks for being a supporter of the podcast. I value being able to have this space to keep us all informed on what's going on in the industry, both here locally in Texas, as well as out there across the United States. And my offer always stands to please reach out, send me a DM, let's connect. If you find these episodes valuable, I would like to encourage you and ask you to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, five stars, and mostly to also encourage you to share this with a friend so that we can help more people reach these stories, issues, and together make a bigger impact on the cannabis industry. 
Which brings me to today's guest, Koss Marte. What a story. I won't even be able to do it justice, but Koss is based in New York. And like I mentioned earlier, he went from being a multi-million dollar ringleader of a drug operation to being incarcerated. And it was during his time being incarcerated that he learned from his prison physician that he was overweight. Locked up, he felt all he had was time to get in shape, and that's what led Koss on a journey towards physically turning his life around one push-up at a time. Within six months, he lost 70 pounds and replicated his successful formula of body weight exercises with 20 other inmates. Then, when he was released, he launched Con Body, a prison-style boot camp that's gained over 70,000 clients, and he's hired 50-plus formerly incarcerated individuals to teach fitness classes. If that story isn't transformative and powerful enough, in addition to that, he's currently working on launching Con Bud, which is looking to hire formerly incarcerated individuals that have been affected by the war on drugs to build a personal and impactful presence in the cannabis market in New York State through dispensaries that he's looking to open up under the New York State Conditional Licensing Program. Naturally, I was really curious to learn about his perspective from being locked up for cannabis to on the other end, being offered a license to legally deal cannabis and what that shift was like for him, how the justice system has shifted since his time behind bars to now. And we got the 411 on the current New York State Cannabis Program rollout. And one of the notes he highlighted was that the New York State program actually prioritizes formerly incarcerated individuals for cannabis crimes to be primary recipients of licenses even ahead of MSOs. So more to come. Get ready to hear the full story from Koss himself. Let's light one up and welcome Koss to the show. Yeah, my name is Koss Marte. I'm CEO and founder of Combody and co-founder of Combud, where we look where we look to hire people coming out of the prison system to work in our businesses. And so my my journey with, with cannabis started 1996 in my building. And one of my cousins who, you know, was an avid smoker, he was about 10 years old when he started smoking and I was about 11. And so when I first saw him smoke, I was very curious and I, you know, smoked a blunt there and the blunt looked like we rolled like a football blunt. You know, it was very badly rolled, but it was smokable and, and we got high and, and there's where my journey started. But I became the kid that, uh, that they called Smokey the Bear in school, you know, so I was in junior high and, and that was like my nickname because I was just like high all the time. <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they, it was always the, those commercials that, you know, caught people's eye, like, don't, don't prevent, like, prevent forest fires, smoking mm-hmm. a beer, some crazy shit like that. But that's when my journey with cannabis started. And then I started dealing and started dealing in 1998. I, I basically created it because of the supply and demand in my school. People were asking me to, you know, buy nickel bags. So I would go down to the block on the corner where my cousins used to sell drugs at. And I would get round of $5 from probably like five people. And and I would probably be the only one buying like the, the Philly, you know, which was 25 cents at the time. And so I would roll up a blunt for them or we, had have, we would have a cipher, you know, with nickel bag of like some really dirt weed <laughs> and and uh as time progressed you know i became you know that guy and and people just started 
contacted me for, you know, weed and I bought a ounce of weed. I bought it for, I think it was less than a hundred bucks and, and, and made 300 bucks off of it, selling nickels on the block. And, and yeah, and that became my, my journey to, to starting a cannabis business, but it quickly grew to being something bigger than that. Been hustling for, I don't know what year is it? It's almost, I guess, 2023. 2023, I guess is almost like almost 30 years, you know, like hustling in the streets and, and, and in the space. But, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, come home from prison after, you know, doing a very long time and coming home, you know, and starting a business where I hired people coming out of the prison system to teach fitness classes. And that, that was all derived from my personal experience where I was incarcerated for running a multi-million dollar drug business. So I was not only selling marijuana, but I was also selling Coke and I had two different services. I had my, my, my cannabis delivery service was called trees for trees of pleasure. And, and, and then the Coke card business was called happy endings. And so I had multiple drivers on the road, 24 hour delivery service in New York city. We were generating over $5 million of revenue a year. I was profiting about $2 million by the age of 19. And it was just a crazy hustle. Had insane. It was just insane. I, I was, wouldn't imagine myself being in that position because it, that, that came as like a supply and demand and the market changed in the neighborhood, you know? So that my neighborhood started really getting gentrified after the, the early 2000s, after 9-11 towers dropped and, and I changed the way I sold drugs instead of like standing on the corner dealing hand to hand, I started doing a delivery service and, you know, when the feds caught me and I got locked up and they put me away and sentenced me to seven years. And so that's when I found out I had a lot of health issues. Doctors in prison told me my, my cholesterol levels and my blood pressure was through the roof. And so I started exercising obsessively. As soon as they told me that, at first I was like, fuck this shit, this is way too hard. I'm never going to do a push-up in my life. But I had nothing but time and I took advantage of the time. And 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 I was even sneaking in weed while I was incarcerated, you know, bringing it and putting it in places that, you know, nobody should put stuff in their bodies in, you know. But that's that's how we consumed. I mean, I ended up in even in solitary confinement for smoking weed, you know, and, and had to do time in the box for that. And even smoking in solitary confinement was something that I did. So like, it just never stopped, you know, and, um, it's just crazy. And in, in New York state, you, you get a minimum of six months in the box for smoking weed, you know, so a 24 hour lockdown, we were, we would fish. So fishing is something that term that we use in prison that we use like strings of our sheets and create a long line and, you know, tie it up with a little piece of soap or something hard to, to, to swing it from one cell to the other. And that's how we passed, you know, stuff around, whether it was kites or weed or food or anything like that, you know, we would just, you know, swing it from cell to cell. But yeah, that's how we, that, that's, that's like my journey in cannabis never stopped. I've paused a couple times because I didn't want to get violated for parole when I came home. Ended up doing two, two and a half years on parole once I came home. And I 
was still involved in the streets, not hustling, but like still just helping individuals that were coming out of the prison system, you know, hanging out with people and trying to change their minds from stepping out of the streets. But yeah, I didn't start smoking again till probably 20, you know, I came home 2013 and 2016 is when I smoked again. And, and, and I just kept, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't bring back the same 50 blunt a day addiction that I had because <laughs> I was smoking so much before I got, was incarcerated, but I just start, I just kept my, my prison habit, you know? So in prison, we smoke spider legs in New York state prison, we call it and like, it's, it's, it's as skinny as a spider leg. And that shit gets you so zooted because you don't smoke so often like that, unless you have like a lot, a lot of money to spend and, and you want to be caught basically, cause you want to smoke something like a pin joint and just smoke it real quick. But anyway, the combo journey started as you know, the, the New York regulations started dropping. I've been advocating in the, the cannabis space since 20, like 17, probably. One of my good friends from Rhode Island had received one of the first licenses in Massachusetts, and he never really sold drugs before. He used to buy stuff from me back in the day, and he was like, I want you to be the CEO. You know, you're doing a great job, you know, running Combody, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and he was like, you're the best drug dealer I know. And I was like, hell yeah, I want to run your company. <laughs> and so I, I went to take that leap and I wasn't allowed to because my criminal background. So Massachusetts had a law that stated that I couldn't work in that industry. And that, that changed over time. But initially when you were filling out the application and, and going through that process, they were, you know, he had the chance of being, being denied because of that. And so I advocated, I was in New York speaking on panels around it. And then, uh, 2021 March weed in New York became legalized, you know, and so we was looking at the regulations very closely. And then the beginning of last year is when they actually opened up the opportunity for, for card, the conditional adult use retail dispensary license application and what the regulations looked out on that side. And so I quickly, it was probably probably the first one to like really get out in the in media and trying to put my story out there around cannabis and um, and was one of the first people that applied for the license. So much to unpack, obviously. You're a very public facing person now. Like you said, you've been doing a lot of media for just your business, but now businesses. And obviously you're really passionate about, I think, helping those who like yourself had been incarcerated, find opportunities. I'm like, where do I, where do I like start to ask questions? Because I think obviously what you're doing is so remarkable in a time where obviously this is the rub. People are still being locked up for cannabis and yet people are able to get opportunities to work in the industry. Yet some states have, I'm going to say it's probably part of their social equity application where they're allowing formerly cannabis specific related felonies or incarcerations to have opportunity to get a license. And then it sounds like obviously like your recent experience in Rhode Island or Massachusetts, rather, they explicitly did not want that to be a part of it. So I would love to just unpack that a little bit from what it was like, obviously, 
not just being inside, but being in the system where you're in a state where the illicit market is very rampant. Obviously, you contributed to it. You found a lot of success in it. To then being out and seeing your state now open licenses, I just want to understand that contrast a little bit better because obviously not a lot of people can speak honestly from the inside because they're not in your position. And so I would just love to hear, is it generally positive favorable? Is it a little bit of a gimmick when, because I think on the outside to give some more context, as much as I think states want to impose social equity opportunities, I don't think that they always actually end up benefiting those who have been impacted the most, if that makes sense, right? And so I just want to understand that a little bit more. New York is a big state to unpack with this new legislation. And so you being kind of in the center, not only as a business owner, but with your background, it's just like, I would just love to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah. So like New York is the first state to even think of doing this in terms of like allowing individuals that have been incarcerated, be the first ones to market and be the first ones to get into this business. So they prioritized. They prioritized. So no MSOs, multi-state operators could get in the game first. They they, they could operate as medical, but obviously the way the money is, is, you know, recreational and they're still operating and they'll get their chance and seat at the table, but it's going to cost them a lot of money to get in the tape in the New York market. But New York, did a ballsy move. They basically said like, Hey, you know, if you have been convicted for cannabis and also have ran a, a net profitable business in the past, you get, and you have to have at least two years of net profit to show them that you qualify for this license. And so obviously I used my existing business. And so there was not a lot of people in the pool. There was 903 applicants that applied. They mentioned that there was going to be 150 licenses giving out. They're also talking about uh, that they're going to give out 300 licenses now. So out of those 903, not everybody met those qualifications. Some people just put their name in the bucket and just, you know, said, I'm going to see, I'm going to try to get a license. But around 300 only really qualified and they're going to start off the market with those 300. But they also... One thing that they did was they gave the licenses to nonprofits first as well, like big nonprofits, which is like a lot of people in the, in the street market, people that have been locked up, legacy market, they're like, oh, this is fucked up. You know, they give it to these individuals and these big, you know, NGOs, whatever. But in order for them to qualify, they had to have somebody that was just as impacted on their board for cannabis. And so they really had to have the same criteria as we did, you know, and, and so Housing Works got their first license and then the Dill Fund just opened up and there's another company in, in Binghamton, New York that opened up that's also a nonprofit. And then the first for-profit business was, uh, it's called Smack Village. It's owned by Rowan. He has a shop on, on Bleecker Street. But they're, they're rolling it out slow, not like other markets, but we'll see. We'll see. My, my, my concern about them running it out slow is for the farmers. So the farmers 
harvested their weed in October and it's March and most of the the farmers don't have none of the cannabis in their stores yet. And so it's sitting in storage and after six months, the THC levels start dropping. And by the time more people open up more shops, it's nobody's going to want to buy dried up weed. Plus they, they, they really, the farmers are really trying to bank off of this and they're just selling their, their pounds at 3,800. And, and one of the biggest problems is that they're selling it at 3,800 when you could buy a pound of weed from California for, I mean, if you buy a truckload, you, you can get it for $500 a pound, basically, you know, and these are the, this, this 1500 illicit smoke shops that are selling weed around the whole city, you know, they're buying it at 500 to a thousand dollars. They're making about $8,000 off the pound. They're crushing it, you know, they're crushing it. And so to see that happening is going to be a very difficult market to navigate, but I, I do trust the system. I do trust that, you know, whoever doesn't follow the rules will get shut down eventually. And if you did, you know, take advantage of the gray market, you know, good for you, you know, grab your money and, you know, get out of town, you know, but we'll see. Yeah. I think that's obviously a similar tune across the United States of weird. The regulated market is not as profitable as the illicit market. So why would I go to the regulated market when I could make more money over here? And to your point, it's not to say that it won't end up sorting itself out, but obviously I look to California and what some of their propositions have done to their operators. And it just, it's creating an interesting playing field for the industry. And so, yeah, I think everybody kind of obviously gets in, they have a background, they have a passion, they have injury, a loved one, you know, somehow this is like intertwined at a personal level. And then you want to get in the industry with good intentions, obviously to make money because I'm not going to pretend that we don't need money to pay bills and to, you know, have things in our life that keep us sustained. But it's hard when you want to pay attention to what the system is saying or what your lawmakers are saying or what the regulation is saying, and they're not making it I guess, accessible or fair or really understanding. And maybe part of the problem is because what I've observed is you have people in these operational positions, probably more so from the state perspective, where they're not cannabis professionals or experts. They're not coming at this thinking like, oh, this is how this other state did it. It's people who are trying to, which it's also hard to say that maybe if someone came from another state, they could do it better because every state has a different geography, consumer base, structure. So I was curious, is New York vertically integrated or they're not vertically integrated? So you're saying farmers versus retailers, you can go get a license for these different aspects of the industry, really. Yeah. So you cannot vertically integrate in New York. And so if you- Not vertically integrated. They do not want that. Yeah. You you could only have a retail license. You could only have, but with the retail license, you could have delivery license consumption lounge license and then this first few pool licenses that are are coming out that's that's the good thing is that you get three so basically not you could have three stores but you could have three areas where you could consume and deliver at the same Mm -hmm. time and in most markets those are separate licenses that you have to apply for but in new york for these card license these special card licenses they're given it those those three options and then on the conditional uh, cultivating licenses, they could get some process 
they could do the processing manufacturing facilities with those licenses and they they only can have one and they're they're capped at a certain canopy of plants that they could grow the only way you could really vertically integrate is if you have a micro license in new york so they have this micro license where it's it operates like a brewery but you're also capped at a certain amount of canopy you know it's smaller the math basically if you max that out you could make up to about 20 million dollars a year which is not a bad business and so and and it'll it'll be a great opportunity for like those warehouses that you could build in upstate new york and have like you know a place where people could come and consume and enjoy the whole experience but it'll be very difficult for anybody to have a, a micro license in new york city just because the real estate is so expensive they mentioned that you could have up to 25 mile distance on a micro license which means you could have 25 miles away where you could grow and then you could have your your retail store in the city which is not a bad deal no yeah so there's like given takes not bad things the only thing that i'm against uh, of is that you can't have your own brand in your store so i can't have the con bud edibles in my shop because then now become a true party of interest with the processor so the processor is making the manufacturing these items and and i can't co-pack with that person because now then we become it's it's a weird technical situation that we're trying to navigate everybody's commenting on regulators are saying like no we don't want anybody monopolizing the industry in new york we want fair chances for these brands that are from the streets to partner up with you know manufacturers and processors upstate so that you know put their brands on the store shelves which makes sense but also you shouldn't limit you shouldn't limit individuals that have their own shop that want to put their own brand out there at least put a cap on the percentage of you know stock that you have that you could name you know your own brand so it's it's been a little bit of a battle and they've been pretty adamant you know about like not allowing that to happen but we'll see we'll see quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. Yeah, that sounds super twisted. Obviously, when you're going to build a brand and if you're getting the retail license, you obviously wouldn't be able to sell your brand within the retail. So are you going for, I guess, manufacturing license or are you going for the retail license? Because that's like you're doing edibles and I'm sure flour and... No, I'm going for the retail license. (laughs) Okay. So you want to be the building that people come in and just unfortunately right now with the way it seems, you're not going to be able to have your own branded products within your retail. Yeah, because the retail license is where I really qualify to get in early because of my conviction and because of Got my it. business. On the, on the cultivation side, you have to have 
pre-existing a hemp license. And so if you, oh. any, any upstate cultivator that had a hemp license, or at least I think it was two years upstate was able to, you know, qualify for the, that first conditional round of cultivation. Okay. That's interesting. Maybe some good news for some of our fellow non-adult use regulated states yet. So like in Texas, obviously you may or may not be familiar, but we do not have yeah. adult use cannabis and we a very, very rudimentary medical marijuana program. We have a lot of hemp growers. And I recently wrote an article, essentially that, you know, if Texas legalizes tomorrow, how many licenses are they going to give out? And so I think right now there's, I just had the numbers, I'm going to butcher it, but it's between, let's say like 300 and a thousand versus like the first year that Texas had legalized hemp, it was, let's say like 3000 people wanting to grow it. So now that we've been in the market for a couple of years, it's certainly dropped off. But you look at those people and even if it's 300, do you think Texas right now where we have three medical marijuana licenses is going to be like all 300 of you, you get to grow weed now? Like, I don't think so. But it's interesting to hear how New York at least tried to create some sort of pathway for that qualification, at least like, hey, yes, you should have had to at least have been growing, which makes sense. They're familiarizing themselves with planting seasons and just the, the nature of cultivating, whether I'm sure it's indoor, outdoor, greenhouse, et cetera, versus someone who's like, I'm going to go grow weed for the first time. It's like, I don't know what kind of product you're going to be putting out in the marketplace. So at least trusting these hemp cultivators, that seems interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I've and they already gave out about, I think it's 286 cultivated yeah. licenses. And so there's there's a lot of farmers that yeah. harvest a lot of flour. Like and, you said, yeah. And, and that's where our concern is that you know, and their their flower is not too good because it was their first like yeah. round of outdoor and you couldn't grow indoor. And so they, they restricted indoor. Now they allowed a lit a limited light depths for greenhouses. So now we'll have this second round of harvesting. It'll come out a little bit better, but That's uh, wild. It's crazy. Because New York doesn't have, as you know, the best weather so to be forced to grow outside only right now. Eesh, yeah. I relate to that. Well, it sounds like it's rolling out at least in a semi-organized way where it doesn't seem to your earlier point, which is always my fear, especially for states like New York and states like my own Texas. Like We're just such eyes on us states that you would think that the MSOs, because I talk to people all the time, they're like, when's Texas going to legalize? And I'm like, yeah, of course you want us to legalize because you have deep pockets and you come from MSO world. I'm not anti-MSO. I just want the small business owners and operators to also have a chance to play in the game. So those like New York's at least trying to execute, you know, according to their plan. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit because you seem super positive with, I'm going to use the word, even the system, like the system that is the cannabis regulation in the state of New York. Obviously you were in the literal system being prosecuted for like you said, not just cannabis, but cannabis being a component of what you were dealing and selling and running your well, I, I, with. I've done tamp. I've done time for cannabis. I've done time for coke and weed. So I've got arrested nine times. So I've had multiple stints upstate. <laughs> Run-ins, dealings with it. Yeah. Well, given that, then I don't know if ten years is the right word to use, but that time frame that you had invested, I guess not invest is the right word, but was taken from you, but it was invested in that system. I just really want to understand what is 
I guess like what is law enforcement like right now in the state of New York? What is happening in terms of arrests for cannabis, knowing that it's kind of in the gray area? Have you got a chance to reconcile or deal with any parole officers? Or obviously, like you're a very public facing person now, especially with the success of Con Body, even just that entity of itself where you're trying to help these people who have come from this shitty situation, trying to get assimilated back into the real world. I'm going to employ you like that is even difficult. Just trying to go get a job after you've been incarcerated, let alone now let's layer on the cannabis normalization, destigmatization, legalization of it. So there's some depth I want to start to kind of pick apart more so really to start is just what is that relationship like now in the state for people who are in your position or were or are who are in your position that you were in 10 years ago? Has it changed? Are people still getting busted for cannabis? Like, what is the sentiment with law enforcement? Are these people now being like, sorry, we locked you up for so long. You were doing a bad thing, but now let's normalize it and give you a license so you can do this legally. And obviously money is entangled in there. We know the states want their money. And to some extent, they're just doing what they're told. This war on drugs, you know, being repeated, repeated, repeated. But it's kind of a fucked up situation. And again, you're someone who can speak to it from both sides. And so I really just want to hear your perspective on it. I think it's a fucked up situation, but it's also a blessing because <laughs> like 10 years ago, I was in, you know, I was in upstate prison and I wouldn't ever imagine that I'll be in the position today that I'm going to be receiving a license. Like, so I'm like living in this, this perfect time twilight zone, you know? And so I, I do feel like pretty blessed that I'm in this situation because anybody that came out, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, you know, won't, won't be living this situation or people that's still incarcerated, but how New York is handling it. No one's really getting locked up for, for cannabis anymore. You can have up to three ounces of weed on you. People are smoking everywhere. Like all you smell is weed. It's, it's, it's crazy. In my neighborhood alone, there's probably, probably like 50 illicit shops. You know, every block has a smoke shop. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. It's, it's pretty awesome that you could see it getting normalized. And there's people that never had to face the, the prohibition side of it. You know, you, we see, you know, these 21 year olds that are out in the street smoking, they're asking for direction from a cop. Like, where, where do I get to, you know, Little Italy or Chinatown and they have a blunt or a joint in their hand. So it's, it's, I still get nervous, you know, like I still have like that PTSD of like, yeah, I got something in my pocket. I got to have like a stash pocket, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I have to put it in the inside pocket, you know, and so it's, it's, it's pretty crazy, but, it's it's awesome. I don't I don't know. And then on the on the parole side, like I'll say ninety percent of my staff smokes, ninety five percent of my staff smokes. And like where during that prohibition side and when they, they legalized it, that was one thing that they changed on parole. It was like you don't test for cannabis because it's legal now, you know? And that was the majority of people like being violated was because they had a dirty urine. And, you know, thank God that, that, and even before that, if you had a medical card, they started being more lenient on that. But while I was on parole, it was crazy. I mean, every time I would go see my parole officer, they were locking somebody up for a dirty year, like every time. And those, those, those tests were, had, they, they were like wrong, what, what's it called? 
just like faulty test because sometimes they would do like the saliva swab and it'll come back positive and and i would i would i remember i came back positive one time and i'm like i have not touched anything i'm doing the right fucking thing i'm not going back to prison and they were like you sure you sure and, and then they would take a urine test and it'll come back negative and then be like okay go home you know but it was like situations like that that are be scary and, and and when you get violated for for parole you go on you go on upstate you know whether it's 90 days or two years depending on what your previous charge was and so it's it was it's a scary situation but we're we're blessed that like there's staff members of mine that are on parole and we have like our staff meetings and we're smoking blunts you know we're all smoking joints i'm literally growing up growing nurseries and and plants in the gym right now you know so i got <laughs> i got some rig incredible genetics you know but it's legal to do it if i have a medical card so it's it's pretty awesome uh, you know t- to be living in this time yeah i can certainly appreciate your you know just observation of the situation and the circumstance like obviously it does suck and you i don't know maybe the question is would you would you take or trade or make any different steps at any point in your life if it led you here, obviously, right? It seems like you're pretty positive about everything that has brought you to this point. But I guess, wouldn't you change anything that you went through? I mean, I can't imagine being incarcerated or navigating that is anything less than shitty. It's a crappy situation. I mean, I can't imagine solitary confinement. I can't imagine at the age that you were locked up at, missing the outside world and then coming back and being assimilated into society. I mean, you just, you seem like you are a great poster child for how the system didn't, I guess, like wear you down, but I don't want to discredit that. I'm sure the system wore you down to some extent. No, I, I, at the time, it definitely wore me down. At the time I was, you know, there were situations where I regret it and was feeling fucked up, but, you know, yeah. looking back where I'm at right now, you know, would I change anything? I, w- I wouldn't change anything, you know? I feel like, you know, again, like super blessed to have an incredible family to, to be, you know, pretty much the face of this too. You know, like I've been, I've sat on the panels with the office of cannabis management, you know, advocating for this, talking about, you know, the, the criterias and even helping like mold some of the regulations that even the regulation that it was open for comments from the public, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And so I, I actually helped start now the card coalition. And so another business that I have on, on the side where we have over a hundred applicants, 22 licensees on the, on the, on the retail side. So I'm starting a whole coalition to come together to really tell them like, Hey, you know, this is what we want, you know? And so I co-founded it with Jeremy, Brittany and, 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 and Jason, three other individuals that have been going through the process, frustrating process with lack of communication. And I've been helping them get communication due to the fact that I've been able to com- get in contact with these regulators because they had me, you know, they gave me a seat at the table. I also been tied into politics because my, my little brother is a city council member of downtown Manhattan. And so we helped, you know, he lost his race twice and we eventually won his city council position two years ago, but it's it's been a lot of work that I've been doing with him. We we literally like lived in the same bedroom together, 
knocking on doors, trying to get people to sign petition, like really listening to the neighborhood's problem, pro- problems and stuff like that. But we have, he has one of the, he has the most important district in the whole city of New York, you know, which controls like financial districts, Rebecca, Battery Park, Lower Side, Chinatown, literally Greenwich Village. So in his neighborhood, it has the first dispensary licenses, you know, in, in the whole state, you know, so we've been going really hard, you know, and, and, and I've been fortunate in it to like be in this position, but it's been, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to control a hundred applicants is a, a lot to, you know, have a lot of employees that I'm trying to help. I'm like, they're nine one one call, you know, and, and, and nine one one never stops spring ringing, you know? So I'm always like working on putting off, putting out fires and, and then I, running around with my daughter all the time, which she's only 14 months and she's learning how to walk and I'm bringing her to all these cannabis meetings. <laughs> yeah, I think you are a great example, certainly of just someone who has been able to make lemonade out of lemons and really just continue to pour into life and use all these different inputs that have happened to you to just power through and see what can be done. And it's just, it's, it's really cool to get to talk to you because again, obviously you highlighted it as well earlier. And I remark on this from time to time. We live in a day and age where there are 21 year olds who are being brought up into legal cannabis. There's no hiding it. There's no stigma to them. It's normal. They can go to a store and buy it. And while I don't have by any means the same background as you, certainly not coming up from New York and what that I'm sure from a just drug perspective was more freely available than Austin, Texas. Still Austin being live music capital of the world, I found myself in a lot of situations where, you know, cannabis was there. And for us, fortunately in Austin, law enforcement kind of looked the other way most of my life. So I never really felt super, I guess, ashamed or that I had to hide it, but obviously I couldn't accessibly go and get it. And so now to see where my state is and what opportunity we have. I didn't intend to do this, but like I shared with you before we were recording and my listeners know to some extent, my accident story, just a hometown girl who really likes cannabis and found herself now similarly in these advocacy conversations and trying to help change the conversation. But it is, it can be a lot because for as much as you want to get done, for me, when I get into politics, you realize how very little control you have. And how you have to just keep having those conversations with politicians, with different regulators, even on the city council side with these voters. It's like, no, hey, I really need you to show up today and do this thing that's going to impact this. And it may, maybe doesn't impact it immediately, but it'll impact it five years from now and kind of seeing a little bit of the bigger picture. And it sounds like you want to bring everybody kind of up along with you on the journey. And and so I just think- Yeah, and the, the, the whole coalition, I, I think, was- you know, our whole journey was to get more information, you know, on, on what's going on, but also like we didn't want to get eaten up alive by the ancillary businesses like bankings and stuff like that and insurance companies. So we came in like super hard and started negotiating with banking companies. You know, it's mm-hmm. most retail shops have to pay $1,500 to have their money in their bank accounts per month, you know. Like it's, it's it, it used to be 4,000, you know, when I was talking to banks in Massachusetts, you know, so now it's, we, we negotiated down to about 200 bucks, you know? And so, cause we came in as a group, you know, and so now we have 
even Dutchies, you know, the, the software system, they're giving us two years for free because we came in and said like, Hey, you need to hook us up. You know, we're, we, we, we bear the fucking, the fucking the worst of the worst. And especially in New York, you know, the amount of arrests that people had here. I mean, I was literally, you know, I used to walk down the street and just get stopped. All oh, the, the stop at first was so real, real. I mean, I've gotten stopped probably over 300 times in my life by NYPD, you know, just for walking to school, you know, getting thrown on the wall. And thank God, you know, most of the time I would have probably been arrested because I had weed on me and I would have to swallow it or put it in places, you know, like that. You know, no one should be putting their stuff in, you know, and, and things like that, which was like super real, but it became our, our common day to day situation. And we, 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 there was a panel discussion last weekend and one of these finance groups said, you know, this is what the price is, blah, blah, blah. But we were like, in terms of, you know, borrowing money and, and coming in as like equity holders to get any fine. We we're like, fuck that, you know, like you guys didn't deal with this shit. You know, you know, like you guys got to give us a fair, you know, I get we got you got to make your money, but you got to give us a fair shot. You know, this is not a fair shot. This is not social equity. You know, well, that's it. It's the cost of doing business in this industry, which obviously people not in the industry don't realize that I'm sure even just people like in your family maybe don't understand the full context it's like oh cool you sell weed it's like yeah like but it's not pleasant every day i am getting raked up the cold (laughs) from every single platform solution service everything like you said and so yeah just recently i was out at a public event everybody's like oh that was awesome you were just in the news we love to see it that's great everything must be going good and i'm like inside i'm like crying i'm like oh yeah. <laughs> the legislation could really you know yeah. take the industry right now and it's like no but everything looks great because you got a great headline or something and obviously you know that's life i'm appreciative for the naivety i think sometimes because it keeps me yeah. maybe motivated so I and i'm not totally just living in my echo chamber of misery but it is hard out there to navigate these things and it's awesome that you're like i said you're you're trying to lift other people up not only just in the industry but obviously who were previously incarcerated as well through just your experience with con body and con bud which i know is really important and just such a pivotal conversation that needs to be happening and kind of like how i started our interview it's a weird maybe weird is not the right word but it's an uncomfortable like caveat to the whole legalization conversation it's like we did a lot of shady shit to a lot of people and now we all want to just pretend like it didn't happen and be super positive and and like how do those worlds meet in the middle and obviously there has to be some reconciliation there also has to be some forgiveness which not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like there's been some forgiveness there and just acceptance of, you know, that was the past that happened. Now we have this opportunity to go lean into the industry. I have a, a weird kind of final side question, maybe a couple questions, but you talked about hemp has to be, from a cultivation perspective, at least they had to be precursing hemp licensees. I'm also just really curious, what was hemp like in New York? Were there a lot of people selling CBD? these Delta-8 cannabinoids, smoking hemp flower. Has that gone away now that you have recreational marijuana? Also, I understand your medical program was probably a lot more broad and accessible than Texas's medical program. But again, trying to just get some more insight of like, huh, you know, what's to come for us? Because I really think CBD is great. 
non-psychoactive cannabinoids, there's a there's a place for them. But obviously you see CBD, CBN, CBG being introduced into regulated products, regulated states. And I just, I wonder where New York's putting that and what's going to happen to your hemp market. A lot of cultivators are not really moving forward with the hemp, you know, and, and it's still, it's still out there before the market went full on cannabis and THC, but that they were selling Delta eights. They were selling, you know, vapes. Uh, I, I think some of it will, will exist, but the majority won't, you know, survive, you know, because the, the market is just leaning to the THC side. I don't know. It's going to be hard for anybody that wants to continue that, the hemp, you know, and just stay in the hemp side. That that's just my theory. Before I, there were a lot of little small shops that were hustling and, and doing their thing. And I feel like some of those, you know, because you had to have a separate CBD license to operate those stores. I feel like some of those stores should have a way into the market as well. But, you know, first they, they're giving it out to the social equity, um, you know, previous convicted license first. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be hard talking to legislators in New York and it, they're, they're mentioning that, uh, that there are other states that are being, have reached out to New York state regulators like, like Minnesota, and they're trying to copy or use some of their, mm-hmm. you know, structure to duplicate in their state. I didn't see that. I didn't see anything that they copied from, you know, the, the, the Minnesota's market to New York state market from the New York state market, but who knows, you know, it, it, we, we, we never know, you know, Chicago is like horrible. You know, they, Illinois basically has like 1% black, 1% Latino, and then like 88%, you know, white stores open. You know, and most of it is just MSOs, you know, lots of MSOs, a lot of MSOs. And it's just like, it's not even that they give out the license, but they don't have access to capital. And, and that's, that's a huge problem in the industry. What, how New York state is really combating that, that the, the governor stated that they're going to, they're allocating $200 million towards these individuals that get a license to operate their store. And it's, it's an incredible deal. Even though you have a you know decent interest rate, it's ten percent, but it's a it's unsecured loan, you know. So if you mess up, like you know, you're not you're not in default. You don't owe anything. So mm. yeah, it's 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 a crazy way to set it up, but we'll see. And I guess that's how they they're they're aiming to do some type of reparations in the system, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. And like you said, it's just trying to piece together a patchwork of what is going to make the most sense for that market. And it does genuinely sound like New York is trying to make some rights and obviously make some money off of the whole program. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of people are saying that New York is going to be this, the, the, the set, they're going to set the trend, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of other states that are not legalized, yes, that they will follow the trend. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, no, I look forward to continuing to watch the evolution of Conbud and kind of with that final question, what is next for you in this step? How far along are you from opening your doors? Kind of what is on the horizon for you, future thinking? Yeah, we will definitely have a store open in a few months. You know, we, we will get our license 
we will be it's it's gonna pop you know it's gonna pop but it's just gonna take some time you know so right now currently i'm just like working on negotiating leases and stuff like that we have a, a space in mind we have store designed we have the capital we're ready to go we have the employees we're, we're probably gonna pop off maybe delivery as soon as we open up as well so it's it's gonna be an incredible i don't know incredible but also like very very difficult business to navigate because there's just so many different moving parts but i have a great leadership team that's helping me out and i will we'll make this thing happen pretty soon so you know right now you can follow me at combat ny on instagram for for any updates we'll see yeah incredible stuff obviously incredible story and, and life that you've navigated through and you're just getting started <laughs> a little bit from the cannabis perspective on this next chapter and really thank you cost for joining me on the podcast speaking openly for sharing your journey and all the best to you and look forward to staying in touch and seeing the next iteration of everything thank you so much i appreciate it love this episode of to be blunt be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect new episodes come out on mondays and for more behind the scenes follow along on instagram at theshadatarabi.com